We'll be making our way uh, through Philippians this morning, um, but for the sake of what we started last week in context and what this mini-series of messages is all about, hold your place in chapter 1. Flip over to chapter 4 and let me read those verses again in which uh, Paul closes his epistle speaking about the secret he has learned for contentment. He says, talking about the gift that they had given him and how they were concerned, but they didn't have opportunity to give before. Verse 11, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I pray that you would pour out on us your grace again. You have already given to us your son. How will you not also with him freely give to us all things that we need? We need more of your word more of your truth. We need your spirit, Father, so that our hearts will be that good ground to receive and to absorb the word of God. Good ground that the word of God can take root in and spring up and grow despite the the thorns of this world, the deceitfulness of riches that would seek to choke out your word, despite the blistering heat of the persecution of this world. I pray, Father, that the good ground of our hearts would bring forth fruit through your word to your honor and glory. I pray, Father, that you would help our church family, help us all to learn the secret of contentment. Father, help us to learn early. I pray that we wouldn't have to learn the hard way. I pray that we would learn that Jesus is all in all, all we need and all that we should set our hearts upon for contentment. We thank you and praise you for what you do in us through your word by the power of your spirit today for Christ's sake. In his name we pray. Amen. There was a believer in the first few hundred years after Jesus who famously said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. And I feel the truth of that statement in my heart every single day of my life. And I've, as I get older, I don't know exactly why, um, but I, I feel this more pronounced in the last few years than ever before. I feel in, in all, every quiet moment of my life, and in many, many busy moments of my life, I feel a constant longing and a restlessness and a grasping in my heart. And my heart is restless until it settles on Jesus. There will be times that I'm just driving down the road and I might pass by a, a beautiful field, you know, rolling hills, green grass, and so on. Cows littered here and there. Just something like that will, will grab me. And I can, I can feel, I, I feel like my heart is going to bust through 
the wall of my chest. Or it could be a scene in a film that's just beautiful, and I can feel this heart-wrenching emotion within me that I want to get into the beauty, and I, I want to stay in the beauty, and I do not want the thing to fade. I, I, want, I want that. And there's a, a constant restlessness and longing and grasping for that that can't be satisfied unless my heart's affections settle on the Lord Jesus Christ. And even though I'm feeling this more pronounced in the last few years of my life than ever before, I think that this is not a unique experience to me. I know that it isn't. And it's simply part of being human. Our hearts are restless. Our hearts are grasping and longing for something that will permanently satisfy. We don't want just the drive-by beauty. We don't just want the fading beauty, the temporal satisfaction. We want that satisfaction that will last for our hearts, that will please us. So what does your heart long for? What are you after? What are you pursuing? What has you restless? Is it success? Achievement? The acclaim of this world? Maybe it's not your own personal success. Maybe you long for your family's well-being and their success. Is it rest? Possessions? Fame? Maybe it's even more basic and simple than that. Maybe maybe it's something smaller. But if our hearts' affections settle on anything within the creation outside of God, We're always going to be chasing. Our hearts are always going to be restless. Because no beauty within this creation lasts. No pleasure in the gifts that God gives to us is permanent. It's Christ. Christ is the only thing that is fixed. He is the ageless. He is the constant. He is the eternal. Yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus Christ is the same. Our hearts must land. Our hearts' affections must settle upon Jesus. Do you want rest in your heart? Do you want contentment? You must have Christ. And your life must be Christ-absorbed. Jesus is the one who said so famously, we know these words. How precious are these words? I don't think we remind our hearts enough of these words. Come to me, he said, all who labor and are heavy laden. Any heavy laden hearts this morning? He said, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you that is be joined to him and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart. What God says that? What God of this world says I am gentle and lowly in heart? The one true God says this. And he says, And you will find, come to me and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So when Paul writes that he has learned the secret of contentment, that he can face any situation, whether he is experiencing plenty of gifts in this world or the gifts of this world have been stripped away by circumstances, he has learned the secret of facing all of it, content. And it's Christ. He had found Christ. He says, as we read earlier in chapter 3, 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Remember, also as we read in chapter 3, Paul had achieved so much uh, in this world. He had earned for himself so much acclaim. He was the rising star in Judaism. He was lapping all of his competition in his zeal for God, in his blamelessness according to the law, in his earned righteousness by the law. He was lapping the competition. He was the envy of his peers. And then he encountered Christ on the road to Damascus, and he realized that all of this gold that he had been heaping up was nothing but dust. And he realized that Christ was everything. Christ was all in all. And his life was empty and naked, and he was poor and blind without anything apart from Jesus. And Jesus on that day made Paul his own, and Paul's heart latched on to Christ and did not let go. What makes Jesus so great? What is it about Christ that he is the one being of surpassing worth? This is a recap from last week, but we saw this in chapter 2. Jesus is the highest of heaven. He is the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He gave up all the fullness of heaven, emptied himself of the fullness by becoming a servant. Meaning he did not give up his Godhead, but he gave up all the rights, all of the uh, reverence that was due to him in heaven The worship of the angels and the saints departed. He gave it up and took on human flesh. The highest of heaven became the lowest of humanity and laid his life down that he might make us his own. The highest of heaven sacrificed everything so that he could make his own the lowest of all things. And that's you and me. And I'm not saying we don't have inherent worth, but I'm simply saying, just thinking what worth do we have to God, considering that we are, we are the creatures who have rebelled against Him and committed treason from the heart and with our lives. But He suffered the loss of the greatest things to make the very lowest thing His own. And so we saw last week that the contented heart must be the Christ-absorbed heart. If your life is not Christ-absorbed, you will not have that contentment that can endure every situation. Faithful to God. Content with His will. Remember the, the, the definition that we gave for contentment? It is simply a sweet spirit of heart submission to all the arrangements of God's will. You cannot have that sweet spirit Your heart cannot rest content unless your heart is Christ-absorbed. And that's what Paul's heart was. That's what Christ had made him to be. He was Christ-absorbed. And so he rested content. What happens when a husband and a wife care nothing for each other's passions? You know, we say that opposites attract and in a sense they they do but if a husband and wife live out their married lives 
pursuing different things, going different tracks with different life aims and different heart affections and, and so on. And the husband cares nothing for the wife's interests and the wife cares nothing whatsoever for the husband's passions. What's going to happen to the marriage? Well, as their hearts go different ways, the husband and wife are going to go different ways. Well, how then do they stay in love? How do, how do we husbands stay in love with our wives and wives stay in love with their husbands? It's not that we get lost in each other. It's not that we just get lost in each other's eyes, you know. Remember the, the early romance? Well, that may have been some of you. I really wasn't all into that. You should have seen it when, when we were in college. Uh, oh, man, it was sick. Sometimes you would walk into the, the varsity commons area where students gathered and we were in such a strict conservative school that there was there was no contact allowed between uh, you know the opposite sex, and so people would you know get within inches of each other's nose and just all go all it made you want to vomit when you walked in. Anyway, I wasn't like that, but that's that's not how you stay in love because that initial attraction and that beginning romance, which is rather immature romance, is going to go away. So you don't look at your spouse and stay face to face all your life long. Rather, we stand side by side by side and we stay hand in hand and we are, we have our eyes fixed on the same horizon. Our feet are pointed down the same road and we have the same aims and that's where we're going. We go together and that's how husband and wife stay in love. One aim, one road, one love in one accord. Will it be, how could it be any different in our relationship with Jesus? Can we walk with Jesus if we don't share his heart's passion? So if your life is going to be the Christ-absorbed life, You must love what Jesus loves. And you must despise, on the other hand, what he despises. But you must share his heart's affection. So this message from Philippians, I didn't expect this in my study on joy. But as I have, I've been reading nothing but Philippians for a couple weeks now. And every time I sit down to read it, I read through the whole thing like we read aloud together this morning. And I've found something that just, it surprised me. Um, and I, I think it's so crucial to Paul's message and to this letter that we need to know it. And it's all about Christ's passion. If we're going to be Christ-absorbed, we must share his passion. So what is Christ's passion? Where has he poured out his affection? Let's talk about the church. It's the church. The Father of glory has set his heart with the Son and the Holy Spirit on a particular people. The Father, before time began, chose them in Christ for Christ. He gave this people to his Son, and then he sent his Son into the world so that Jesus could make them his own. Jesus came and he redeemed them. He purchased them. He obtained them at the cost of his blood. And even now, Christ is pursuing after these people. 
No matter how far they have wandered, no matter what they have done or have not done, no matter what they think of themselves, no matter what the world thinks of themselves, even now, Jesus Christ is in pursuit of them. His steadfast love, His his goodness and His mercy are pursuing after them all the days of their lives. The worldly system despises its former citizens who have been transferred from that domain of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. The world despises them. What do you think of them? How do you feel about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Our hearts and our lives must be poured out on the same people that God, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit have poured out their hearts on. The boundless energies of triune love are pouring out on a particular people. We cannot be Christ-absorbed, and that's the key to contentment. Christ-absorption, right? Christ-passion, Christ-obsession. We cannot be Christ-absorbed and not lay ourselves down with the church for the church. So if you will be content, you must be Christ-absorbed, and you must pour yourself where Christ pours. You cannot be all for Jesus and halfway for his church. You cannot say, I love Christ, but about church be, eh. It doesn't work that way. You cannot love him and not be into the church. So you, if you must, are going to be content, if you're going to learn the secret of contentment, you must be all about the passions of Christ. Now, Paul had planted this particular church. He had an incredible history with them. He had, he had been the one to preach the gospel in Philippi, and he had seen the dead Philippian hearts regenerated and awakened to the glory of Jesus. He had seen them through from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity in the preaching of the gospel. So he had a great history, and he loved these people. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. Let's see how Paul felt about the church. This letter is all about joy, right? And we've been talking about Paul's joy in Jesus. But that extends where Jesus' heart pours to the church. He says in verse 3 of chapter 1, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. How does he feel about this church? In his routine, regular prayers for them, every prayer is offered up with joy overflowing. And it's because of their partnership in the gospel. Because they shared this ministry of proclaiming Christ together. Look at verse 7. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace. They're partakers with him in salvation. They're part of the church. And so he holds them in his heart as dear with the greatest, highest affection. Look down at verses 24 and 25 of chapter 1. 
as he thinks about whether he is going to stay in prison and be executed or be released and continue on in ministry, he realizes, verse 24, that to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. What is it that has um, given Paul particular joy in these verses? It's his partnership with them. It's his ongoing ministry with them. So I want to submit to you this morning, if you are going to have this contentment, you must be Christ-absorbed. And to be Christ-absorbed, you must love the ministry of the church. You must be filled with joy over the ministry of the church. You must care so deeply about the ministry of the church. That brought Paul joy. Because of his partnership with them in the gospel, he made every prayer for them filled with joy. What did Paul find for the contentment of his soul? What did he find for joy? It's not so much what he found, but that Christ found him. And Christ made Paul his own. And Christ brought Paul to himself. But I want you to see something here. Christ didn't just bring Paul to himself. He also brought Paul to his church. And he said to Paul, I am yours and you are mine. And these are yours, Paul. And you are theirs. When Jesus brings us to himself, it's not simply to an individual, one-on-one, personal, personalized relationship with Jesus. We are born again into the family of God. If we are going to have contentment, if we are going to have joy, we must have the same passions as Christ. Our passions must be poured out where Christ's are, and that is upon His church. So stake great interest in the ministry of the church. Paul's joy is, is bound up with these people, and their joy is bound up with him. Paul is also not only concerned about their ministry, he is also concerned about their destiny. Do you think about standing before the Lord at the end of your life? I'm sure you do. I'm sure you think from time to time about giving an account for your life, about Judgment Day, what the Apostle Paul in this letter calls the Day of Christ. And so in your mind... How does Judgment Day appear? What's, what do you imagine? What's the setting? I, I, I imagine that you think of you standing before the Lord and perhaps your family standing before the Lord. But as Paul writes, and that's good, that's necessary, definitely. As Paul writes this letter, he is thinking of them standing before the Lord. He cares about their standing before Jesus. They're giving an account to Christ. Do you? As he is so concerned about the church, he is concerned about their destiny. Do you think about your brothers and sisters standing before God? Are you invested in their lives? Do you have an interest in them? Are you pouring out for them because you know that one day they will stand before the Lord and how you pour out in them now will have an impact? 
on their giving an account of their lives. So look at this. Back to chapter 1, verse 6. Paul's thinking of their destiny. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. Then, as we read earlier, he, he reports what he is praying for them about. And he says in verse 10, you know, he, he prays that their love will abound more and more, filled with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve, verse 10, what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Again, this phrase, the day of Christ. Paul is Christ-absorbed, and so he is church-absorbed. He cares about their ministry and the gospel, and he cares about their destiny. He cares about their standing before Jesus on the great day of accounting. Look at chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. Paul exhorts them to be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. They're standing before the Lord They're giving an account to Jesus on that day of judgment will affect, will have a direct impact on how Paul feels. Isn't that crazy? How they give an account, how they're standing before the Lord will impact how Paul feels. On the day of Jesus Christ, he says, I want to feel proud. Not That's not the sinful kind of pride, of course, but he has such an interest in how they do, how they endure, their blamelessness, how they shine as lights in the world. It will impact how he feels on that final day, the day of Christ. Look at chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. He just wants to remind them of the difference between them and the world. He talks about them keeping uh, watch for those who are enemies of the cross and so on, whose end is destruction, who glory in their shame and so on. And he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So he has great concern for their standing before the Lord on the day of Christ. Do you think about your brothers and your sisters in All's Chapel that way? Do you picture them standing before the Lord? Do you pray that on that day they will stand before Him pure and blameless? Do you have a personal stake in that? Will Does that have an effect on just on your emotional state? Just to think of your brothers and sisters standing before the Lord and hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Do you have that kind of stake in the church? Do you have that much interest in your brothers and sisters' well-being? Is your heart poured out on these people, on this family, in that fashion? If we're going to be Christ-absorbed, we must be church-absorbed. 
Now, Paul had noticed something in the Philippian church, something that was of great concern to him. So he was thinking his joy was in their ministry. His joy was staked on their destiny and their standing on the day of Christ. Also, his joy was in their unity. And that was the area of great concern for the apostle. He had noticed that there were cracks beginning to appear in the solid walls of their love. They weren't together as they used to be. Not that they were totally split apart, you know, wringing each other's necks or anything like that. But there was some discord and it alarmed him. So look at chapter 2, verse 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. That affected Paul's contentment. It affected his joy, the unity of the church. Wherever there was discord in the church of Jesus Christ, whether in this local church or in the Corinthian church or the Roman church or what have you, it affected the Apostle Paul. He, he talks in another place in 2 Corinthians. He talks about his anxiety that he has in his heart for all the churches. He was so concerned with their unity, their love for one another, their steadfastness together, that there would be no rupture in the fellowship and so on, no cracks in the wall of their love. It was of great concern to him. So he says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing for, from rivalry or as Ryan's edition of the ESV read, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And that's what leads into that great, most famous passage in Philippians about Jesus and the example of Jesus. And he says, have this mind in you. Have this mind among yourselves. Notice, that's really, it's not an individual emphasis there. It's a corporate family emphasis. The word of God is saying to us, you together amongst yourselves have this mind. Nurture this mind. Cultivate this mind. What mind? What mindset? The mindset and the attitude of Jesus who emptied himself by becoming a servant and laying down his life and death in obedience to the Father, even death on a cross. Have that mind amongst yourself. Amongst yourselves, the, the mind of humility and servanthood. Verse, look at verse 21. Interspersed throughout this letter are warnings about their persecutors. And also, he points them to examples of those whom they should follow. So, of course, the ultimate example is Jesus, which I just talked about. But he also talks about Timothy at the end of chapter 2 and Epaphroditus. And he holds himself up as an example. But in verse 21, when he talks about their opponents, he says, For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. That's what defined the world. That's what defined their opposition. Seeking their own interests. He says, this is not the way of Christ. Look over at chapter 4, verse 1. 
He says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. If you were writing a letter to Alds Chapel Bible Church, and you said, dear brothers and sisters, dear church family, and then you wanted a, a further description of who we are to you. You wanted to describe further how you feel about us. What would you say? Dear brothers and sisters, dear beloved, dear church family, Paul says, dear church family, my joy and my crown. You are the ones I love and you are the ones that I long for. Do you see how the Christ-absorbed life affected Paul's attitude and feelings and mindset toward the church. He was Christ-absorbed and therefore church-absorbed to the point where he could say, you are my joy and you are my crown. You are my beloved. You're the ones I love and you are the ones I long for. Now, I know I haven't talked a lot about contentment today, almost just in passing. But we know how Paul achieved contentment to face every situation, right? It was Jesus. Jesus was everything to Paul. Jesus is the one for whom he counted everything else as lost. Everything else was dust to him, rubbish to him, dung to him. He counted it all that way because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. So he was Christ-absorbed. That meant that his passions would be poured out where God's passions are poured out. Where is that? On a particular people. On those whom God chose as his own from eternity past in Christ. Whom he sent Jesus for whom Jesus gave his life and spilled his blood for to redeem and purchase and obtain. It's the church. It's the church. I don't think that we can be content in every situation without being Christ-absorbed and therefore church-absorbed. We can't love Jesus and say, eh, about the church. We can't be all into Christ and then halfway to the church doesn't work that way. So how do you feel about the church? Do you rejoice when your brothers and sisters rejoice? Do you weep when they weep? Are you concerned for their ministry? Do you have a stake in their partnership in the gospel? Are you concerned that they be aligned with you in proclaiming Jesus to the world? Do you think about how your brothers and sisters are going to stand before the Lord, before that throne and give an account for their lives? And are you fully engaged and invested and pouring out for the unity of Alts Chapel Bible Church? Today, one of our most steadfast couples 
is not with us. And I'm really happy about it. I'm really happy to see Eddie and Brenda gone today to spend time together and invest in each other and and pour into one another and celebrate 47 years of marriage together. It just fills my heart to the brim with happiness for them. I'm just glad for them. And I feel that way about all of you. The Apostle John said about a, a dear beloved church member, he said, I have no greater joy than to see you walking in truth. Can we say that about one another? I have no greater joy than to see him, see her walking with Jesus. That makes me happier than anything. It's how Paul felt about the church. John felt about the church. And I love to see you walking with the Lord. And to see you disengaged, to see you wander away, to see your affections elsewhere given perhaps to the world, that's heart-wrenching. That's heart-breaking. We're all growing into that. Let's aim for that. This is a marriage. Together we are the bride of Christ. We are to stand side by side, hand in hand, heart to heart, together with Christ. We have the same aim. Our eyes are fixed on the same horizon. Our our feet are pointed down the same road. We're walking this road to glory together. Are we not? We have so much at stake in one another and in one another's well-being. Let us love this church. Care about the ministry of this church. The destiny of every individual in this church. And the unity of this family. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the example of the Apostle Paul and his his words of exhortation and how he just poured out onto paper his love for the Philippian church, his joy, his crown. I pray, Father, that you would give to us that same love and concern for one another. I pray that I would not be my ultimate concern. I pray that my brothers and sisters here would be my ultimate concern. I pray that they would be to me my joy and my crown. And I pray that I would fight on their behalf for their good, their well-being and their growth. I pray, Father, that you would unify this family. I know, Father, that if we share the same love, the same mind, and if we are of one accord, there will be such a joy in this family that our community will notice. There will be, within our community, those who are lost, who notice and who are drawn to this otherworldly joy, this otherworldly love. I pray that we would have that here. I pray that you would put that into us. You would grow that in us. We ask these things 
Father, in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.